Well, welcome to episode 40 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me, the Professor, Professor of Political Science, Peter Van Onselen. G'day, uh, you. How's isolation going? Are you, are, isolation. You, are you enjoying it as long as you haven't actually got the illness? Well, I've got the happy situation of having got a negative result oh. uh, on my uh, uh, coronavirus test, which was... Um, which I had because we got the call from Qantas that I've been sitting next to someone on a plane uh, who later tested positive. But it turns out from and the And we're Prime still Minister, angry at Peter Dutton for that, aren't we? <laughs> it wasn't Dutton. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I hear from the Prime Minister that, in fact, catching it on planes is uh, – there's no evidence people do catch it on planes from fellow passengers. I find that extraordinary, don't you? I mean, I, I know that he says that's what the key advice is from the chief medical officer down – but really, I mean, wh- why? How can you catch this thing in all these other ways in close proximity, but not on a flight? It's extraordinary. Well, I would say that the answer to that is take all information as being until you hear otherwise, mm. and that's what I think all Australians are are getting used to, um, because things have been moving so quickly. And in fact, the pessimists in this right at the start have been proven to be right, and the optimists have have been left high and dry a little bit. So the more and earlier that people were seeing this as being a calamity, uh, the the more correct history is showing them uh, to be. But uh, you're in the political midst of it. We're expecting, as, as we speak right now, a massive new stimulus and aid package from mm-hmm. uh, the Prime Minister. Tell us about it. Yeah, look, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because it is, according to all leaks and reports and speculation, going to completely outdo the first stimulus package of just under $20 billion, but even outdo comfortably, we believe, what Kevin Rudd came up with as his second stimulus package, which was the one in the heart of the global financial crisis that the of the then opposition, the coalition was incredibly scathing about and that they said that it was too much, they voted too random, it. they voted against it, they opposed it. Now, okay, these aren't analogous times, the GFC versus now, economically speaking, but they are both crisis times and they're now looking to go much further, we believe, than Kevin Rudd and the Labor Party did, presumably because their advice is telling them that this is a much bigger crisis even than the GFC, and some of the evidence seems to be suggesting that to be the case. So, you know, a real worm-has-turned moment for Scott Morrison and the government, the coalition government, when it comes to support for stimulus. It's extraordinary, isn't it, because... The GFC, people felt, was the biggest uh, collapse. You could make arguments about 1987, the October crash then, but really since the Great Depression and the big effort was to keep us out of the Great Depression. And I think for, for years afterwards, the GFC was seen as the biggest global uh, economic ruction that had happened since the Great Depression of the uh, late 1920s and 30s. And, huge, and yet we're now on the, on the trembling on the brink yeah. of something that makes the GFC seem almost inconsequential. And uh, you, you talk about the pessimists have been proven right each time. The Prime Minister started as an optimist saying we wouldn't need stimulus or words to that effect. We've now not only had round one, but we've got this round two looming that's going to be bigger and better and more wide-ranging. But he also originally told us, don't forget, that there's no way this was going to measure up to the GFC in significance. And yet here we are, fast forward, and we're now being told and have already been warned by him that this would be far greater uh, a convulsion to the global economy than what the GFC was. So 
things keep changing, which is why I think people wonder about the advice. And, you know, in fairness, at one level, you've got the whole John Maynard Keynes thing. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Mm. But is it the facts changing as this evolves or is it the government and policymakers being late to do things? There is a difference there. Sure. Yeah, well, I think there is. Look, I think it's a natural instinct of conservatives um, and this can be a great strength, is not to rush absolutely to the extreme, you know, potential of any event, but rather to to move towards it, but keep something in reserve. It's mm. not a, it, you know, there are military um, metaphors that can be used here as well as as to do you keep something in reserve or throw everything in at once? And and military planners have learnt that it's useful to keep something in reserve but what we're what we're seeing is is plainly that this is a battle on such a wide front and such a you know existential crisis for the economy that all the reserves are being thrown in with one exception that's that schools stay open we'll get to that maybe but the um but the other issue is that we're seeing if the early reports are correct a fundamental ideological shift in the coalition side of politics in that there is talk and we expect to get that confirmed within hours of us finishing this conversation of the provision of a sort of super dole a special um, coronavirus payment Mm. for people who lose their jobs in this period which will be higher than new start now that itself is raises some really interesting things assuming it happens uh will many of the people listening to this will already know whether it's happened or not but the suggestion being is that there'll be a payment above new start which currently sits at 490 dollars a fortnight for a single without dependents it's not a great sum of money so something north of that if you lose your job as a consequence of these businesses that are absolutely stopping cold and laying off staff um you know that that these payments are being made now you wouldn't that would look normally like a Labour Party kind of proposition rather than a coalition proposition, yet it seems that that is what we're about to see. It does. Uh, and it's just a sign, isn't it, that the government uh, is listening to the professional economic advice uh, and that advice is taking them in a different direction than their natural ideological predisposition against such types of payments. So that's a good thing, isn't it? It, yeah, sh- it shows I think that so. it shows that Morrison is not a hidebound for all his limitations as a politician, and, and no one would argue that Morrison is a giant, uh, you know, in the in political history. But nevertheless, <laughs> he's not so bound. How, by, what, what a compliment, you. <laughs> No one would argue that he's a giant in terms of political history. I think that's true, even though you support him. I don't think there are many saying this disagree, but I just just sort of came out of nowhere, that's all. Yeah, no, but I, but I think we've got to look as a country. We've got to look at what are the what are the resources available to us to get through here, and a key resource is who is the political leadership of the land. And you look at Scott Morrison, you'd, and you'd have to say that uh, expectations are not enormously high, particularly <laughs> after his initial handling of the bushfire. This is true. You're just handing out compliments left, right, and centre at the moment. <laughs> no, but but it is in the context that he does have the difficult job, and know, if he I is know. going to provide. Uh, something that can keep the wolf from the door at the most basic level for people over the next few months, uh, then that would 
be something that he would have scoffed at three months ago, that any event could have could have produced the circumstance whereby they would be making what essentially amounts to a welfare payment with no mutual obligation, there's no job search elements in association, essentially, here, have this money, and that he would be behind and backing that, assuming if that's what he's about to do, then you'd have to say that this man has had mm. some sort of, um, you know, conversion on the way to Damascus to recognise that there are bigger things than ideology. You've got to keep people with the wolf from the door. And, and we and, wait to see how he makes that happen. Yeah, and, and I certainly welcome his flexibility, if I could put it that way, ideologically on something like this, um, his ability to backflip from an ideological position. It's a good thing, frankly, um, because when times require it, you can't be hamstrung by an ideological predisposition one way or the other. What about some of the other things, though, Hugh, that are going on? I mean, no doubt we'll go through these one by one, but the debate that you already mentioned over school closures I find fascinating. Uh, Overnight from last night to now when we're talking... Uh, the UK have done exactly that. Plenty of other countries have already closed schools, but of course, which is a huge switch by by the by Britain because mm. just a few days ago there was talk about them keeping them open uh, w- with the intention that children bring uh, coronavirus home to families and that you build up this herd immunity concept, which has now been completely Debunked. dumped. It seems no one wants to do it, and Boris Johnson has spun on a dime and, and has gone to shut down schools. It leaves Australia as the outlier. On schools, and I know from talking to um, a number of uh, physicians, doctors, emergency doctors, and so on, who've been taking their own kids out of schools, mm. that uh, that they take the view that the comparison with Singapore, which kept its schools open, is simply doesn't hold up to close examination. Oh, well, can, can I can I jump in on that, Hugh? You're absolutely. Please do. I've heard the exact same thing. The, the the Singapore comparison is fascinating on a number of levels. I mean, firstly, Singapore was in a position of having had school holidays when this all started. So it's actually not analogous instantaneously because their schools were already not actually congregated. Uh, You then look at somewhere like South Korea where they actually extended school holidays for the purpose of keeping schools open but trying to elongate the time that students weren't there while they made preparations. Going back to Singapore, they have uh, the testing, the temperature testing, they wear masks, they have a more disciplined approach to imposing um, the isolation from one student to the next. You compare that to here, we don't have neither in place the temperature testing nor the capacity to put it in place because we don't have the machines. Uh, we also don't have all the students running around wearing masks far, far But there from. are no masks. Exactly. If you wanted to, you can't, they're, they're unavailable. And so, so the, the, the comparison doesn't actually hold up on those levels. But then just today, Hugh, I don't know if you've heard this, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer talking to Frank Kelly on ABC Radio National, he said... Temperature checks, I'm paraphrasing, he essentially said temperature checks aren't really that useful anyway. Now, that was in direct contradiction to what a person within government, I I don't want to be more specific than that, as I was preparing to talk to Frank Kelly on a political cross straight after that, he said to me, you really have to get up the states and territories to get their act together to have proper temperature testing in all the schools. And I go, right, okay, that's an interesting point. That is a state issue, perhaps. I'll think about that. I go listen in to the Deputy Chief Medical Officer talking to Fran Kelly, and then he says the exact opposite thing. He says temperature checks aren't necessary, which immediately removes the analogy that the prime, or the comparison that the Prime Minister had just the day before with Singapore and Australia vis-a-vis schools. No wonder people are a little bit confused. Yeah. 
I mean, one of the things about that, as I understand it, of this, that the you can be uh, capable of spreading coronavirus without having a temperature. That's and true. so, therefore, the argument goes that um, a temperature check uh, does not of itself say that there's not a problem. And I think we can all kind of understand that that's the case. But, but you does- do usually, though, don't you, Hugh? My understanding is you can spread it without a temperature for a brief period, but then you yeah. tend to have a temperature when you are contagious still for a longer period. So That's what Brendan Murphy, the, the chief yeah. medical officer, said, is that most of the – most of the spreading, the transfer of this virus happens when you're symptomatic. Hmm. And so temperature would be part of those symptoms. So it is not an absolute signal of anything, but it's a useful signal that if you're running a temperature, then you stay away. And in, in Singapore, uh, parents are required to take their kids' temperatures and they must go to uh, school before they're allowed in the school. They've got to get um, um, a piece of paper from the or, – or, or an an email, some sort of communication that says that your child's temperature is, uh, yes, I can, I can attest that I took my child's temperature this morning and it is, uh, it is not elevated. That allows them to get to school because if it is elevated, they're not allowed to go to school. But if you, once you've done that, uh, then they're allowed to go to school when their temperature is tested again, even though – so the only kids going to school in Singapore are those who don't have temperatures as reported by their own parents. But before they get in, they are tested for their temperatures, and then test it again later in the day. So there's certainly much greater um, machinery built around how kids go to school in Singapore than the somewhat, well, you know, almost completely laissez-faire hmm. approach within Australia. And one's going to wonder how that's going to play out over time. Exactly. And look, my, my suspicion is that schools will close. It's not a matter of when. It's a ma- It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Private schools already are. Now, they've got different consideration sets. Obviously, they've got borders. Public schools don't. They've got more affluent families, generally speaking. So, therefore, some of the concerns the government has if public schools shut down uh, around kids going home and therefore taking essential workers out of the workforce to look after their own children, that is less of an issue in private schools. I'm not saying it's not an issue, but it's certainly less of an issue than it is across the public school system. And most importantly, private schools that are already shutting down have online learning capabilities that the public schools just simply do not have. Uh, and yeah, so I mean, these laptops, differences every important. kid's got a laptop, they've got wealthier parents, uh, they're set up to do that anyway. A lot of the um, poorer community parents struggle to have laptops for their kids exactly. and, um, and it's harder to do. Uh, but, you know, I think that window would seem to be narrowing before the shutting down of schools, you would presume, uh, because they- otherwise we seem to know something. And bear in mind, it is the same virus. The virus crosses borders. It's, it's no different. And there's was some talk about different strains, but that seems to have been poo-pooed. Um, it, it, it appears to be one virus, and so therefore the only thing – uh, that's the variable is the human response to the virus, mm. and, and that's what we need to look at the, the, how things are going to go. We're gonna, we have to take a break, but let me just say this. Uh, what I don't understand is the comparison between Singapore and Australia being used by the Prime Minister when the only point of comparison seemingly is leaving schools open as opposed to then all the protocols and all the enacted policy procedures that Singapore does that we not only aren't doing, but our chief medical officer says we don't need to do. It so seems lazy, What on it? earth and is going and, and, on there? Well, the only thing that you can see, you go back to the Dantian comment that says that they're worried about 30% of health workers um, no longer going then to Then don't make the Singapore time. comparison. It, it's an yep. attempt to justify an Australian decision on separate grounds by pointing to their successes when the Singaporean successes are built on something we neither are doing nor can do. 
Quite right. We need to take a break, Hugh. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, when you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Hammered Home with me, Baz Dubois. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast. I am the hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendidly relaxed, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rate and review while you're there. Welcome back. This is episode 40 of The Professor and the Hack, and we're all, of course, talking about uh, coronavirus. Uh, You've just been talking to Anthony Albanese. Of course, he's been reasonably Mm. sidelined in this process, uh, but the opposition has an important role at a time of national crisis. What's he telling you? Yeah, look, he's trying very hard to be as constructive as possible, uh, partly because I think he probably realises that the times require it, partly also because he would realise, politically speaking, he doesn't want to be seen to be carping. And that's a difficult situation for an opposition because I'm pretty sure that there are some things that they're at odds with the government about, as you would expect, you know, different people with different views coming from different perspectives. They want the government to hear those views, possibly act on some of them, at least. The government seems, for example, to be acting on concerns around casual workers, which were initially dismissed uh, by Christian Porter, the Industrial Relations Minister, but now seem to be forming the backbone of what package they come up with to try to help those workers. So that's a classic example of the opposition uh, having an impact that's a positive one where it gets listened to. I think the opposition, though, is frustrated because they're not included in the war cabinet uh, that is being put together so-called, which is really just a telephone hookup once a week or perhaps twice a week between state premiers and the Prime Minister. So they're out of the loop. They don't get the same briefings that the government gets. So they have views and have criticisms where they don't want to be accused of carping, but then they also don't have the full suite of access to the experts and the insiders to be able to know whether their complaints can can or could or should be answered, uh, either by a change of policy or by a reinforcing of why the current policy is the best way to go. So it's a pretty awkward position for the opposition to find themselves in. For what it's worth, Hugh, just quickly, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I actually just don't understand why Morrison wouldn't bring Anthony Albanese in. I think it's the right thing to do in a public policy sense. I think it's the right thing to do for calm purposes, to put them on the same page and bring their disagreements behind closed doors like it is now between state premiers and the prime minister. They have plenty of disagreements, I can assure you, behind closed doors, but then they present a united front. I don't see what the logic from Scott Morrison is in shutting the opposition out. So I would say if I was Morrison, I wouldn't put Albanese into this because it presents that alternative prime minister uh, approach. And if it ever did blow up into into a serious disagreement on a matter of policy, then, uh, you know, then then Morrison loses the ability to say, well, yeah, but you you don't know what I know. Um, By and large, the process would allow him to know it. Uh, I think the proper course, though, would be to say to Albanese, nominate a minister he can be part of this phone hookup or she can be part of this phone hookup. Okay. And, yep. and and that way you've got uh, access into shadow cabinet level. Uh, I think it is important because Labor, let's just presume good faith on Labor's part and, and you can't always assume good faith on any politician's part, <laughs> but I think they're genuinely trying to do their best. I think everyone's genuinely trying to do their best. But if they were to, say, want to, say, call out an issue, perhaps it might be about schools or something, um, and then go public, hold a door, stop, you know, get the message out. And then Morrison can get up and say, well, you're not getting the, you know, the the key medical advice, the health advice that I'm getting. And so um, your views are, are, are pointless because the, the strong advice that we're getting is something else. We'll then share the advice at, mm. at the senior level, give access to that advice. We need 
you know, the Prime Minister talks about it, this being like a nation at war. We are at war. So, so show the credit. If we are all pulling together, we're all in this together, all this kind of language comes from the Prime Minister. So just bring it all together. It seems an oversight that's completely unnecessary. Bind in some element of the uh, opposition DNA into those senior uh, conversational groups. There's a whole bunch of government business and cabinet business which is closed anyway to this so-called national cabinet, uh, and that will still proceed. But you, I, I totally agree. I think it would, it would be a good look if you're telling the country to come together, uh, you know, to put a, a senior opposition Meanwhile, person into it. Meanwhile, Tasmania has closed its borders to the rest of the country. I mean, they often get upset when they get left off maps of Australia, but they want to be left off the map now. They're gently rowing in the opposite direction off of <laughs> the Great Southern Ocean, I think, at the moment. They leave us out of there. They've got their own issues. They've, you know, they've had some cases. Um, in fact, from early on, there were cases uh, in Tasmania. Um, but in many ways, it's a reasonable thing. Uh, th- there's been this curious thing about Tasmania, and I, I'm, I'm, I am an unabashed fan of Tasmania. I've taken extended holidays there with my family. I love the island. I love it physically as a place, as a range of things. I feel like a butt's coming. No, no, not at all. But what we have seen happening is, in fact, there are people who have been making decisions about relatively cheap real estate down there, retirement, baby boomers going down there, but also the sense that the climate over the future might be better than it is in other parts of the country. So Tasmania's had, for the first time in decades, an inward uh, population in recent times. So, um, you know, could there be a sort of a a move for a a kind of a coronavirus um, uh, sort of escape hatch for the rest of Australia? (laughs) Well, the Tasmanians have said, no, we're closing that hatch. You can forget it. So um, it is interesting. We've not had times like this. No, no. uh, And I was on the hookup with Alan Joyce, the head of Qantas, just just before having this conversation. There's a man with a lot on his mind. Good Lord. Yeah, but, you know, what he's done, so in fundamental things, they're basically shutting down the international operation. Mm. They are deeply reducing their domestic operations, but will keep it going. They've left open the possibility for some one-off unscheduled uh, international flights to go and pick up expats, perhaps from places like Los Angeles or London, who are trying to get home. Uh, that would be in concert with the government. There's talk about having some planes that might fly internationally for freight, both to get some Australian freight out, mainly high-tech freight, I would think, uh, but also possibly because we have a need for, uh, you know, let's take one example. Let's say a vaccine becomes available. We're going to want to have that freighted in pretty bloody quick. So, um so there'll be some flights going, but for the most part, there won't be. But as he says, someone said, what, what are you going to do with all these uh, aircraft? Because mm. their entire A380, their entire 747, their entire uh, spanking new 787 fleet has got nowhere to go. Well, because what's the answer to that? The answer is uh, that airports are going to become car parks. Right. Most of them are going to be parked at the gates at international airports. There's no international airport. Why not? So, uh, So this is what... This is what we're going to see. And meanwhile, there's been another development there for Qantas staff where the head of Woolworths contacted Alan Joyce and said, look, your guys work in customer service and your baggage handlers work in shifting stuff. Woolworths is overrun with demand at the moment, an unnecessarily peaked demand because people are buying more than they need to, but nevertheless, they're trying to do it. So they've made an offer to give to fast track um, Qantas staff, I, I behind hope, the scenes staff. I hope their baggage handlers look after the eggs when they put them on the shelves a little <laughs> bit better than my bags. 
you travel too much, man. You've just been you've been damaged. You've been hurt by these things. But you know, somewhere in this. What Joyce is saying is he says this will be, and this is a message for all, this will be survival of the fittest. His intention is, he says, Qantas has a good balance sheet, it has a good reputation. He says airlines are already starting to go bust around the world. They will continue to go bust or be renationalized in various different marketplaces around the world. At the end of it, this is going to be a massive shakeout of the airline industry. Mm. But when things pick up again, the, those who are the fittest will survive and come through. Now, that is a metaphor that we can apply to uh, companies within industry sectors, but also um, entire industry sectors. Mm. So, you know, all segments of – it's funny, we, we, we've, we've, for years we've been worried about the agricultural sector because of the drought, and yet they've got rains and, and some of their export markets are, are going to be hard to get to and all that kind of stuff, but nevertheless, they're no longer the problem the, or the people suffering the deepest problem. There are a whole bunch of sectors that even in reasonably good times, mm. and they look in retrospect as good times, ha- are really just hanging on. A lot of those industry sectors will not survive. There will be a, whatever happens now, there will be a huge churn in uh, industries where people will emerge at the end of this in six months, 12 months, 18 months, perhaps when the, v, uh, the, the, the vaccines come in, and those industries will be gone. Will the cinema ever come back? Um, you know, live entertainment might come back with a hiss and a roar. Will free-to-air television come back? It relies on advertising and others that rely on advertising. Don't say that. Well, but you know, um, I hope I I firmly hope that it will. But it in the sector, anyone listening to this will be in a sector, mm. and they will know uh, whether they're in a sound one or not. If you're in pharmaceuticals, not bad, mm. you know. But others, not yeah, so much. It's interesting. And we've got to expect that. Yeah, the, and the, the, yeah, that that disruption side of it, and another part of it. And look, you know, I, I don't tend to be a glass half full kind of person a lot of the time. But this is me trying to be positive. One of the things out the other side of this that I think will be a good thing uh, for workplace flexibility uh, and for a lot of working women, but also men, uh, I don't want to be too gender specific about this, this idea that presenteeism in the office is important will fall by the wayside, won't it? Because a lot of people will be working from home at different moments in time. And there's a willingness for people who aren't used to that or are culturally not adroit with that to get used to it. And to therefore, when we do come out the other side of this, not necessarily expect people to be sitting there present if they can do the job remotely. And that can actually help people's lives in the longer term. More people working as productively, perhaps even more so, but remotely and more flexibly able to get the balance better attuned between life and family and recreation. These are all outcomes that will be really fascinating when we come out the other side of this, you know, and there's, there's good and there's bad in all of that. Uh, the survival of the fittest things that you talk about, the potential for a more understanding workplace environment uh, that I'm talking about. The world will be very different, both for the experience of what we're about to go through. And let's not forget, we are not even at the end of the beginning yet uh, v- versus, uh, you know, the way that we go on thereafter will be very, very different. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, I've uh, I've been forty years a journalist, over forty years a journalist, and I've I've covered you know crashes and I've covered ructions and wars and terrorist attacks and these things just as a as a as a person of my age, 
will have done and my parents were born into the depression era went through the second world war my father under nazi occupation for mm. virtually the entire wartime and those stories are part of my dna going up and there is no doubt that what we're seeing now is as profound as anything in my lifetime and um and short of world war as profound as anything in my parents lifetime and they're both happily still alive in their 90s uh we are in big times yeah. well it's the same for me hugh like it's interesting my parents both long since passed away but a little younger than yours were they still alive my dad uh, being dutch uh, was in occupied holland during the war uh, for him from the age of three through till eight or nine uh, and that and and his father was actually uh, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp because he was a Dutch merchant navy man uh, who got caught in the Pacific at the wrong time. So it was just my father and my grandmother uh, who were in occupied Holland. So you can imagine how much that increased the anxiety and the difficulties for them. But these were the stories I heard, and on my mother's side, her father, my grandfather, was uh, pretty senior in the U.S. Army fighting in World War Two. So they passed all of that down, but they themselves, other than at that early stage of their lives, didn't experience anything like this either. And I look at my children versus where I was at in life around the time of the GFC, and I do think this is going to be far more significant than the GFC was, but I didn't have kids then. Uh, And I was quite uh, out of the loop with what was happening around the GFC, to be perfectly honest. I noticed things seemed to be all going on around me, but no great material impact on me. I didn't have a mortgage at the time. I didn't have children that I was worried about or thinking about. Now, it's a very different kettle of fish on that front. Uh, and I look at my kids, and they're only 11 and 13, but I think, wow, depending on how long this recovery takes or what profound shifts it makes uh, to the quality of the global economy as they then only a few years from now start hitting the workforce or trying to get to uni, what kind of environment do they go into? And and my wife and I, we can really see it on their faces. Like they're young, but they get it. You know, they understand uh, that things seem pretty tense uh, at the moment. And they hear it at school. They see it at home with our conversations, obviously with the sort of job that people like us do. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real it's, – it's, it's difficult to watch actually in, in people so young. Yeah, and people who might be a few years away from retirement looking at their retirement incomes disappear, the superannuation uh, numbers dropping 20%, 25%, their prospects of, say, working out to a time where they thought, yeah, yeah I can glide along right. into whatever the point is, and then that's that's gone. Um, you know, there's go- the value in property may well tumble. We don't know. Uh, it almost uh, has to, doesn't it? It's, it's a matter of how much, though, do you, logically, given how and then, mortgaged and up then, everyone is. And how desperate might be some of those sales, and then even just managing auctions. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're starting to go online auctions for properties, uh, and so they don't have crowds of people at properties uh, at their at their auctions. So, how is that going to work in terms of um, whether they can generate a salesman or saleswoman can generate uh, the kind of prices? The, these sorts of things. There's, there, there, there are wobbles almost everywhere you look, um, and 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 this is the you know, we're going about the new normal. We have a new normal, but that normal is going to continue to change. And for a while, we'll change down. But we're still human with human capacities and community strengths that are emerging. And uh, if there's a positive, it lies in that. Hmm. We're almost out of time, Hugh, but um, your thoughts on the Prime Minister's big address uh, to the nation uh, on the Wednesday? 
I thought it was the best I've seen of him yeah, uh, on this. I think one of the things that happened is that they've uh, worked very hard to get their ducks in a row to get the states. Um, they've always had a strong conversation that they need to shut down the business where states are uh, essentially as they are fully entitled to do constitutionally, um, take their own positions on things and then argue that position, have different points of view, but then that undermines every other state and increases the state of uh, confusion and bewilderment and, and panic and distrust in the general population. So they've tried to bring all the messaging together, tighten it up, um, he was sober and clear. I think schools will be a decision that they will regret and reverse at some point. But on almost every other level, I think they're far better than they have been up until now. And uh, and they're now sitting, writing as we speak, uh, new stimulus packages, uh, which will go deeper than anything that we've seen, certainly since the GFC and almost certainly beyond the GFC. And so then we then we really get to see, you know, the, the shine on the metal as to whether these guys have got the skills and the will uh, and the plan to get us through this with minimal damage. Yep. And what did you think? Yeah, look, I, 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 I thought it was his best performance. Um, but there's a difference, isn't there, between talking about his ability to come across calm and considered and his communication skills versus whether they're doing the right thing or not. I mean, only time will tell. I know that's a, a, a flippant phrase, but it is actually true here, and, and it will take a long time for us to know, uh, and even then we may not know, whether or not the right decisions have been made. But in terms of presentation uh, and communication, I thought it was the best I've seen him. And the most prime ministerial that mm. he's come across, I think, in the 18 months that he's been in the job, he's always looked like as I think Tom Gleeson called him, the relief school teacher who became Prime Minister. You don't feel like you have to take him too seriously because he won't be running the class for too long. Well, that changed when he won the election. Uh, and But it didn't really change, I think, in some people's psyche about him. Uh, I thought yeah. that changed uh, with that address. You know, He did really look like he'd grown into the job, but those are all optics. You know, It's outcomes that matter in a time like this, and we'll see whether... The decisions he's making, the decisions the cabinet's making, the advice that they're getting from the professionals, which advice amongst that swathe of advice they're getting, uh, they're choosing to follow rather than not follow, only well down the track will we be able to make some really strong assessments uh, on how well Australia's done indeed, how well the world's done indeed, how well Australia's done in the context of how other Not countries have done. Yep. So, so, so he is effectively a wartime prime minister right now, and uh, it's up to history to decide whether he's Neville Chamberlain or Winston Churchill. And of course, uh, <laughs> uh, whatever your politics, you rather hope that he's going to be more Churchillian than uh, than Chamberlain. And as long uh, as he doesn't anyway. drink as much scotch on a daily basis. <laughs> Champagne for breakfast. What's wrong with that? <laughs> We're out of time, Hugh. I've got to go hit the Channel Ten dunnies and find some toilet paper before I leave. <laughs> so you're the man. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Peter. That was a joke management. See you, Hugh. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. For news, sport and entertainment stories with a difference, 10 Daily has it all covered. 10daily.com.au